you know, improve our quality of life, knowing about them, uh, having them, uh, you know, in the center of our, um, of our knowledge base, whether that be just spiritually or intellectually. And I know it made a big difference for me. I mean, I grew up in the Bible Belt and didn't know about any of this. And when I discovered it, I was like, wow. You know, wow, it almost felt like a conspiracy to keep all of this from us. And I wonder, did, have you ever had those thoughts? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, when I was younger, because Persephone has always felt like she's kind of been lurking in the background of my life. When I was younger and we would learn about mythology, it was very surface level. And I, I distinctly remember being told um, that, you know, these were the, the myths that the Greeks made up to explain what they couldn't explain. And so it was kind of, you know, there wasn't a lot of attention given to the in-depth um, analysis of the of the myths. And as I got older and started to do that myself, I found there was just a, a huge reservoir of just guidance and um, lessons that we can learn from working with these with these goddesses. Yeah, absolutely. And if, you know, and the shame of it is, um, you know, I feel like this this almost should be a class for women and for men, uh, because the shame of it is, if for some, if if you know you don't have a reason to delve deeper, you miss so much, and um, mm-hmm. and so much of it really is about, you know, women becoming whole, you know, about them being empowered, mm-hmm. and uh, so it's it's um, you know it's a shame it's not more widely understood and respected out there in the mainstream world unfortunately I agree um, okay so um, you know maybe uh, you know we'll have you back to talk about Persephone uh, but let's you know we're going to focus on Demeter today uh, because I know there's you know uh, you know there's a lot for a whole show just on Demeter mm-hmm. herself um, so uh, are you um, you know a uh, priestess or uh, academic um, I mean what drew you I guess is where I'm going with this uh, the actual sure. question what drew you to the Greek goddesses and are they your primary two so i think I've, I've always been interested in the greek goddesses i would consider myself a priestess of some of the goddesses that i work with and a devotee of others um i you know i've always been fascinated by their stories and while i also work with celtic deities the thing i like about the greek deities in addition to the fact that some of the myths are just so outlandish that you that you can't help but be entertained, is that they, so many of them have human foibles as well. Um, and so part of what inspired me to write Demeter is I had finished the book Persephone, and all of a sudden I started getting these taps on the shoulder from Demeter. And I, I kind of liken it to, you know, um, being with someone and meeting their mother for the first time. <laughs> And so I followed that. It was just very interesting, like, you know, Demeter coming to me and saying, okay, you've been hanging out with Persephone, but I need to talk with you now. And and so I started going down that path and realized that there is really not a lot of in-depth information on Demeter. Um, There's definitely more information I have found on Persephone. And so I started to go down this path of working with Demeter and writing the book about her. And what I found as I often find, is that the timing was perfect for everything that ended up coming up in my life while writing the book. Um, it, it just per- perfectly fit with the lessons I needed to learn and the guidance I was able to get from seminars. So. 
That's pretty cool. And I have a feeling some of the things we're going to talk about uh, by the end of the conversation, I will say the same thing to you uh, about, because, you know, this interview was delayed, and uh, I think I probably have questions for you today that I might not have had for you mm-hmm. a few months ago. So, yeah, it is, it, you know, divine timing. It's uh, quite, a, you know, quite an interesting uh, mystery. Um, mm-hmm. So, um Let's start with, well, I mean, okay, so what we, you know, what we generally learn about Demeter, uh, you know, it's, it's that myth about losing her daughter. We know she's the brain goddess. You know, I, I learned that there are three versions of the myth of her losing Persephone. You know, one is the matriarchal version. Uh, one is the patriarchal version. Uh, and then I'm forgetting what the third one is. Um, oh, I think, the, uh, I, I think it's where she willingly went down into the underworld to be of service mm-hmm. to the people there. Do you um, do you believe that? I mean, is that how you teach about Demeter and Persephone now? Um, or I, I'm just curious about that. Sure, sure. So when I talk about Demeter, I talk about um, multiple versions of the myth because I think it's important for people to, there's something to be gleaned from each different version. But I think what you said is absolutely spot on. The traditional story of Demeter that we most are familiar with is the, the hymn to Demeter, Demeter, Demeter. Um, and that, that was written at a time when matriarchal religions, cultural things were starting to become more patriarchal. And so it's definitely, with everything that we read, of course, we have to look at the context within society at, that, at the time that it was written. But what I found interesting is I traveled to Greece in 2018 when I was working on Persephone, and looking at the art, I went to Eleusis, where the Eleusinian mysteries occurred. And looking at the art, uh, it was very interesting to see so many pieces of art where Diviner was not angry with Hades. In fact, it, they were, there were pieces of art where Persephone and Hades were smiling, and Diviner was right there with them smiling. And so it's very interesting to see just the different interpretations of the story and how it changed over time. Yeah. Um, but it's... It, yeah, so it's just been a, it's been a, I, I work with, you know, both. I think both have value, but I tend to be more drawn to the story that is really more about um, the, the independence, uh, young women finding their independence, and not necessarily because somebody has taken them away, um, but just because of yeah. the natural occurrence in life. Right, right. Well, and, um, and Demeter, um, you know, one of the things in, um, kind of I think one of the the mysteries that I and I could be wrong here and I'm I'm fine with you correcting me because I always like to uh, fine-tune my you know knowledge base um, one of the interesting things about Demeter that I think we don't always delve into is Balbo and um, and the way I remember it and it's been a while but uh, you know Demeter was in grief over having lost Persephone and Balbo comes and does a dance and shows her genitals, makes Demeter laugh, and so the world is, you know, the green growing thing started to grow again. And I wondered if that was not a story uh, or allegory or, uh, you know, about the power of the woman's genitals, you know, the life, you know, that's like her portal of life, right? Um, and, right. Uh, I, you know, and maybe it's also about not having uh, 
having shame over sex as well, you know, that it's a, mm-hmm. a healthy thing. And I, I wonder, um, am I like totally off base? I mean, how do you see Balbo fitting in and aside from she made Demeter laugh? Yeah, it's very interesting because if you if you read the myth on a surface level, Bobo has a very minor role. But when you really start to dig into it, there's a reason she's there. And there's a reason that she's the only one that can make Demeter laugh at that point in time. And I do think, as you said, there is a connection between her being very sexual and very, um, you know, showing her genitals and things like that as a giver of life in a time when Demeter, who is normally a giver of life, is very depressed and has shut everything down. So I definitely think there is, is something to that. I haven't delved into her as much um, throughout my research of this, but I did find it very interesting. And she was important enough that she was uh, included. She had a minor, or I'm sorry, a, a big role, a major role in the Eleusinian Mysteries. So there was always oh. somebody that acted out Babo in the Eleusinian Mysteries. Oh, okay, okay. From what we can I, I, well, tell. I, and, From what we can tell. Yeah, I, well, and I, yeah, and I want to get to the Elucidian Mysteries too. Uh, but before we leave Balbo, <clears throat> uh, for some reason, it's making me think about the pig motif. Um, I know when people used to go to the um, attend the ancient rituals of Demeter and Persephone, and you know, we should say that you know they were around for thousands of years, uh, and mm-hmm. you know, we treat the Elucidian Mysteries as if. Oh, you know, they were they were just a blip on the screen. Um, people would go with little piglets, uh, cleanse them in the river, and then I think yes. offer them up at the rituals. Uh, do I have that right? You are correct, yes. And what was the significance of the pig? I mean, do we know why the pig? Well, I'm going to do a little bit of just opining here, so I, I can't tell you that this is exactly the reason. Uh, but I suspect that um, there were different, you know, animals and crops that were of great importance to people at that time. And so usually when you brought a sacrifice, it was truly to be a sacrifice. It was something that was important to you. So I tend to think of it as that pig being something important that you're sacrificing. And you're sacrificing in that particular uh, context, the Lucinian Mysteries, through a rite of birth, death, and rebirth. And so I definitely personally tend to associate um, the pig as being connected to that whole process. Okay. And about the Eleusinian Mysteries, I mean, I know Carl Ruck, who I've had on the show, and he's been in, had some essays in my anthologies and stuff. He He's really delved deep into, like, I mean, what was happening? What was the hallucinogen that maybe yeah. they were drinking? What, what can you tell us about the Eleusinian Mysteries? So they were held twice a year. Uh, you had to go through the lesser mysteries before you went through the greater mysteries. They were open to anyone. The only people that they were closed off to were people that they considered barbarians, which some interpret to mean that they did not speak the language of Greece at that time, or if they had murdered somebody. Otherwise, you were welcome to join. And when you were going through the mysteries, whether you were a slave or a king, it did not matter. Everybody was on the same level. So the lesser mysteries you would go through. The greater mysteries are the ones that get more attention. And this is where you have the procession um, to Eleusis from what is now a cemetery in, um, in Athens. You had the procession. You had, as you said, the sacrifices and the purifying through uh, the 
bathing in the in the ocean. You had the um, you had dancing. You had you know bottles we talked about who would be there along the way to make you laugh. But really, the the key part of it is is when they would go into the building where they would have the rituals, and there would they would some believe that they, which I tend to believe, that they would drink something that was hallucinogenic, so something that had they believed pennyroyal in it, and there would be this reenactment of birth, death, and rebirth through the story of Persephone. Um, and, you know, we don't know everything about the, the mysteries because there was a very strict rule that you were not to talk about the mysteries after you went through them. In fact, some people have been or there was record that they would be exiled if they talked about it. So we don't, we don't know all the specifics. But what we do know is collected over time is that a lot of the people who went through the mysteries indicated that they felt a sort of peace, a coming to peace with the concept of death. They weren't as afraid of it anymore. So something happened during the the actual rites of the Eleusinian Mysteries that it seems somehow um, enlightens people on the cycle, the natural cycle of birth, death, and rebirth to the point that uh, it allayed some of their fears. And we know that mm, it's very, very important. Yeah, we know it's very, very important to culture and society. And like you said, it lasted for a very long time until I think Christianity started to take over and different invasions happened. Yeah, yeah, and and I and I bet it didn't. Um, well, you wonder if it added to the allure or it helped it go away. The fact that people couldn't talk about it, you know, it, you know, which yeah. which way did that go? You know, um, interesting. Yeah. Boy, would I wouldn't give to have a time machine to go back and uh, I know. <laughs> And be in these these old ancient mysteries. Um, well, and I think Carl Ruck talked about maybe um, you mentioned pennyroyal, but I think he was thinking mushrooms uh, might have been yeah. you know what they imbibed. You know, um, you know. I I wonder if we'll really ever know. Yeah, and I should clarify, pennyroyal is is the closest that I think that I've found that we've gotten to. But I also read a lot about ergo which is a fungus that would grow on the shaft of wheat, which tends to make more sense given how closely associated wheat is with denser. So um, I don't know if there's an actual mushroom, but this is listed as a, a fungus that has hallucinogenic properties. Yeah, yeah. Because you think about it, you know, um, uh, you know, these women were incredible pharmacologists back then, and they knew about, you know, all of, you know, all of this herbology. So maybe they knew the ergot would cause uh, hallucinations. And um, I read somewhere, I don't know if it was Carl, I forget where I get some of this information from because I'm fortunate to invite lots of these folks on the show and chat with them. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, uh, I got from one of these scholars that they thought maybe at the end people saw a vision of Persephone. And I, is that something you, you might also, also agree with? Or? I mean, it's hard to say for sure, but I would suspect that that's a very good possibility, um, that they saw Persephone or, you know, Demeter or, um, yeah, any of, the, any of the vital players in the mysteries. And there is, a, there is evidence to suggest that at the end of the mysteries or towards the end that there was symbolism of corn being held up for the symbolism of rebirth. Hmm. <clears throat> 
Well, I know I saw a documentary once where the Greeks were great at making statues talk. I mean, literally, there was a way for them to get into some of these larger statues and actually um, uh, make the people gathered think that the statue was talking because, you know, you think about, you know, they were they were probably in torchlight or candlelight uh, at night in these, you know, ancient temples. So it wasn't like you could see clearly, you know, right all the way to the front and uh, man I would just love to know how they pulled this stuff off without um, uh, you know with all the modern technology that we would have today to uh, uh, you know to to make those sorts of things happen (laughs) wow Um, that would be so cool to um, you know to actually see how they how how they did these these rituals uh, in ancient times yeah it's fascinating to me that they were able to, this, these mysteries were able to endure as long as they did and had such a impact on people. It does make you wonder what exactly happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you talked about the lesser known and the, and what, and what was the other phrase you used? The lesser known and then the... The um, lesser mysteries the, and then the greater mysteries. The greater mysteries. What was the difference there? So the greater mysteries were longer. The greater mysteries are where you had the reenactments. Um, the lesser mysteries were almost like a preparation for the the greater mysteries. And what would happen sometimes is people who had gone through the lesser mysteries would help with the future lesser mysteries. But basically, um, they would gather in the same area, I believe, the, the cemetery where the greater mysteries start out. But it, the reason that they had the lesser mysteries was for purification. So people had to purify themselves before they could undergo the greater mysteries. And they had to wait a period of time because these were these happened at different times of the year. And for me, I think part of that too is that, you know, when you have a mystical experience, so you go undergo a rite, you need to have that time afterwards to integrate what you have learned mm-hmm. or what you have, what has come to mind. And I think being able to take that into the greater mysteries was, was really important. Mm, that uh, that uh, that's a really good point. Um, well, and um, I, I, I'm wondering too, um, you know, in, in your book, uh, you know, oh, oh, one more thing about the about the different rituals and things. Were any of them just for women, or were they all for both sexes, like the Lucinian mysteries? You mean that were? I'm sorry, which which mysteries? The Lucinian mysteries? Or are you talking about other? Right? Um, just in general, the uh, the rites, you know, uh, the rites and rituals of Demeter and Persephone, were they mostly just for women or no? It appears that most of them were for women. There's a specific rite to Demeter, and that one was for women only. And, in fact, some of the rites that were just for women, like there were pretty strong consequences if a man showed up. So, But the greater mysteries and the lesser mysteries were inclusive of, of both genders. And one other thing I will say of interest that's interesting, the lesser mysteries would take place in the spring, and the greater mysteries would take place in the fall. And what I found very interesting about that, with all the symbolism of Persephone and the pomegranate and Demeter, the fall, of course, is a dark time of the year when everything is starting to grow fallow, there's not a lot of growth, and so it's more of the, um, more of the I think, going into the season of, of death, for lack of a better term. And yet when you look at what was so important to the Greeks, their crops and everything else, these were things that were kept under the earth. So there were riches 
to be found in the dark times and the darkness of the earth. You mean because, like, the seeds were marinating under the earth and, you know, in the spring they would burst forth? That is definitely a part of it. But the other part of it is that they took the crops that they harvested during the the growing time, the growing season, and they stored them a lot of times under the earth during the winter. Oh, I see. Okay, I didn't. I didn't grasp that. Okay, so um, it, so are you also saying that the um, the you know the rituals, the mysteries, it's sort of followed the agricultural cycle or the cycle of the growth of the wheat? That's what it appears to be the agricultural cycle because it definitely is a, a seasonal agricultural mystery. So it would make sense that um, the that they would follow that same time period okay and do we know much about the priestesses of uh of demeter and or persephone you know i did not dwell as much into that but what i do know is that there were certain roles that were assigned for the greater mysteries and these roles oftentimes were passed down from family to family and so it would be you know from daughter from mother to daughter to daughter again um, it was very rare, from what I could tell, for anyone not in those original families to be to play a major role in the mysteries. Hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and did that also? I mean, it, was there wealth uh, involved? I mean, did you have to be of the you know upper class and elite to uh, be priestesses in the temple? Do we know? You know, I don't know the answer to that, but I will tell you that for the mysteries themselves, there was no expectation of every socioeconomic economic group mingled together during those mysteries. Okay. Um, and in your book, you talk about the lesser-known mysteries of Demeter, uh, where Demeter, you know, gets angry and she wants vengeance. And um, I yeah. assume that's uh, about Persephone being, t- you know, stolen away. Maybe we think in some of the myths by Hades. Um, do some people have trouble understanding that? I mean, do they want her to just be this, um, you know, mother crying, you know, uh, I don't know, crying in her beer, so to speak, and, uh, you know, they can accept the grieving the grieving right. Demeter, but not the angry Demeter? I think that's part of it. I think a lot of people don't always know all of the stories of, of Demeter, which where, where she is angry. I mean, certainly in the story about her daughter, she is angry as she rightfully should be, but I think it's also a commentary to a certain extent on the way um, women were viewed and perhaps in some ways are still viewed. If you look at the story, when she goes searching to find out what happened to her daughter, in uh, Homer's version, Helios, you know, the, the sun god comes to her and says, tells her that you know Hades has taken her, but he basically in modern terms says, oh, don't worry, she'll be fine, he'll make a great husband, and dismisses her anger. And I think, and that is just really, I think, at that point where her depression and grief and rage gets to the point that she refuses to allow anything to grow on earth. And, I, you know, at first yeah. everybody cajoles her, you know, to try and get her to do this, and, and she, she is adamant that she will not allow anything to grow um, until her daughter is returned to her. What's interesting is she's associated with the Aranes, which are, of course, the, the you know, the beings of vengeance and rage but usually in the stories when the Aranese were unleashed upon someone it was because 
some sort of violation had occurred, but oftentimes it was violation um, of women at the hands of men. So I definitely think there's yeah. some gender roles being discovered there. And really, if you look at our society, sometimes women aren't allowed to be angry. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. Um, and, and sometimes it, it, it you know, it's uh, it's really interesting. I've I've been researching that uh, lately. You know about um, how society uh, has a problem with women expressing anger, and it's not just yeah. men have a problem with it, but it seems like women do too. It's like you know they want you to stuff your you know uh, righteous yeah. anger. Anger, you know, you should be you should be angry about something but I don't know it makes them uncomfortable or something yeah and um, they they just kind of want you to you know sweep it under the rug and forget about it and go away um, it is that kind of what you're talking about too yeah you know I think because people have a hard time I think sometimes with Demeter because she's this mother goddess she's nurturing she is what brings things to life she is you know to the point of being overbearing she is nurturing of her daughter and so it's hard for them to understand the anger aspect. But what's interesting is if you look in nature, I mean, we all know the mother bear archetype, right? So the mother bear mm-hmm. loves her cubs, but she will, you do not want to get in her way if she feels that her cubs are threatened. So yeah. we all have, we're, none of us are one dimensional. We all have various right. aspects to our being. And so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting to see the, the way certain things of our current society are reflected in myths and vice versa. Well, and speaking of that, there's something called, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's, uh, you know, along this idea of, of uh, anger and, um, uh, you know, anger being stifled, that sort of thing, or uh, anger looked at as a negative emotion, uh, there's something called white women's tears. And, um, you know, you'll find black and brown women talk about it mostly, and it's how they've, uh, how they've had to stifle uh, their pain and injustice in the world mm-hmm. because maybe talking about it makes white women uncomfortable um, or uh, white women's tears can be, um, you know, used woman on woman, too, to deflect and uh, or uh, maybe to put one person's emotions above another. Um, is is that something you've encountered in learning about this, you know, anger uh, versus nurturing uh, Demeter, you know, to reconcile it? Yeah, I think it's very interesting that you bring that up because I also, um, amongst the many things I do, I'm, I'm working uh, doing some consulting right now for businesses trying to be more inclusive, uh, work with diversity and equity and inclusivity. And I definitely have come across that as well, where in the past, and maybe not consciously so, but uh, so, but there have been times in history where white women's tears have been weaponized um, yeah. against other cultures. And so I think there's, and there's also very much a, you know, we, I think as a society in general, we're not super comfortable with anger. And we're especially not comfortable with it from women um, who are supposed to be nurturing, life-giving, loving, all of those things. And so I definitely think that um, there's some, you know, there, there is, I think it is hard for people. And I think it's hard sometimes for women to know how to deal with their own anger. Yeah. And so yeah, any kind absolutely. of discomfort there 
is kind of deflected. And I think that's definitely something, cause, because I think, you know, they say that depression, which Demeter um, obviously went through, she had all the signs of depression, they say it's anger turned inwards. Mm. And I find that a very interesting concept because I think that, you know, anger, we tend to view it as this horrible, destructive thing, and it can be. But there, as I talk about my book, there are there are ways that anger can be productive. Yeah. Yeah, and you won't, don't want to turn it uh, in on yourself uh, because, right. I mean, that can that can make you sick, that could make you depressed. I mean, dis-ease. I mean, I think uh, the body-mind idea that we, um, you know, I, I think most people have come to understand if uh, your emotions, your psychological state can make you physically ill or, uh, you know, that right. sort of thing. Um, you know, I think you're, uh, it's really an injustice if you expect someone to, if, if you stifle their anger, I guess is the easiest way to put it, or you try to play down their, um, their anger if they feel like they've, um, you know, uh, they've, they've been dealt with, um, you know, or misused, but dealt with badly or misused. It's it's actually yeah. I think a form of gaslighting even, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know you'll say oh well you know um, it, uh, what you went through was no big deal you know it, it was no big right. deal I don't perceive right. it that way so I mean in a way that's a form of gaslighting just to avoid maybe someone's own um, you know uh, because they're uncomfortable with the anger I guess um, mm-hmm. it, it I mean is 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 you know that's some of what uh, you know, you're talking about as well with your clients. Certainly, that becomes a part of the conversation. I think in terms of, you know, going back to Demeter um, and, and women in general, I think, you know, one of the things that I think she teaches us it's a much more subtle lesson is boundaries. Because if you look at other mm-hmm. stories where she does get angry, um, because there are other stories where she's angry and she does, you know, do some not so nice things to people, it's typically because somebody has violated her her boundaries. And so I right. think in a, in a way, if we, you know, it teaches us to know what our boundaries are and, you know, set those boundaries so that we don't get into a situation where we're bottling so much up and we are less likely to be um, in situations where we, um, where that anger builds up to the point where it's unmanageable. Right. Well, and, and women are taught, I mean, to just endure, I think, as well. Right. Um, I mean, I, I wrote a book, Normalizing Abuse, and it's really, and I, and I did a call for, uh, you know, to people to send me examples of things that, uh, uh, and some of them ended up in the book. And, you know, what I found over and over again is, um, you know, women were expected to just, you know, sweep it all away, get over it, put on your big girl panties, you know, and, uh, and yeah, and I think that's, that's, uh, that's the wrong message to send. Uh, And it says, you know, don't have boundaries, just suck it up kind of a thing. Yeah, well, well, um, uh, so yeah, so healthy boundaries, important women, (laughs) without shame, without (laughs) guilt. Um, so what about the grief and the loss? You know, um, yes. does does Demeter help us with grief and loss? If, could you speak to that a bit? Sure, um, she does, and it surprised me a little bit. So there is there are many epithets for Demeter that most people aren't aware of, but one of them is Demeter Chthonia. 
And this is her aspect of kind of the underworld. Um, she's described as having a gloomy, death-related aspect. So in Athens, um, people that had died were referred to as the Demetroi, which is another way of saying Demeter's people. Um, and they believe she received her worshipers when they died. But what's interesting for me personally is that when I was writing this book, um, I, I did not think about Demeter in context of grief in any way, shape, or form, which looking back is kind of surprising because she obviously goes through a lot of grief at the loss of her daughter. But I had experienced, uh, during that period of time, I had experienced actually some very unexpected losses. I lost my 18-year-old niece unexpectedly and suddenly due to a rare medical condition. And then, of course, you know, last July I lost my, my father um, due to cancer. And I, as I was working through grief with my niece initially, I somehow I thought, well, I want to explore this with Demeter because she lost her daughter. And I know that, you know, my sister's going through that very thing. And I was surprised at how helpful working with Demeter was in terms of helping me come to terms with my own grief and loss. And, you know, it's very interesting because if you look at her story uh, where she loses Persephone, she, um, you know, when, like I said, when, when Helios says, oh, basically, like, get over it, you know, it's fine, and Zeus sends people down to cheer her up so she can get over it, let the crops grow again, she stands staunch in her, she's not going to shorten her grief or um, bottle it up to make others feel more comfortable. And mm-hmm. so it really it really taught me, you know, first of all, we all grieve in our own way, in our own time. And I think sometimes in society when, when somebody close to us loses someone, there's a lot of support in the very beginning, but then you, you tend to draw away because you don't know what else to say or do at that point in time. And I've even seen um, where people have lost somebody and other members, even the most well-intended members of their family and friends, after a certain period of time, expect them just to move on as if nothing happened. And you you really can't. You can't bottle those feelings up. So one of the things Demeter taught me was that it's important to feel the grief. It's important to give it space and allow it to unfold in its own time and its own way before we hurry off and try to reimagine what our life is going to be like without this person. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with being sad. And if it makes other people uncomfortable, that's really their issue to deal with, right? So Demeter really helped me to understand the importance of feeling those feelings. Um, but also she helped me to understand how to move forward with some of those feelings. And so, you know, even though she had lost her daughter, if you read the story, out of this loss comes the... Um, the, the worship and the devotion and, and the Ellisonian mystery. So she's able to have something productive come out of this. But I was able to work with her. And in fact, in my book, there's a meditation where I was able to work with her and give her some of my grief and have her transform it in the basket that she keeps her wheat in. And just really understanding that cycle of birth and death and rebirth. Um, it, she was tremendously helpful to me during that period. 
Well, that that sounds lovely. Um, you know, and and it you know, and it just kind of stresses again. I mean, we will do anything not to feel discomfort, right? Right. Um, right. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, even um, you know, in these uh, times when people are going through these emotions. Um, you know, we we just uh, you know we just don't want to look at it. It's like we're snowflakes. <laughs> um, yes. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, but thank you, thank you for sharing that. Um, well, uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, I'm a little late getting to it, but that's okay. Uh, but Robin, when I come back, I want to talk more about Demeter in the role of modern day social justice. Um, okay. But yeah, uh, so we will uh, we will do that. Uh, but first, a word from uh, Joe Carson. This is from Jonathan Nightshade, a Gardnerian high priest of the Whitecroft line, a traditional craft practitioner and researcher, writing about Joe Carson's book, Celebrate Wildness, Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Feraferia Path. I love this book, how special this work is, and how appreciated. As someone who was young in the 1970s, and through the years, only found snippets of information on Feraferia, one of the first modern pagan paths, this book comes as an artistic revelation of the core practices of the way of the goddess and gods reborn for the next age of the Divine Maiden. She has clearly introduced the historical background, philosophy and ritual practices of the joyous wilderness mysteries of the fairy faith, illuminated by the marvelous pagan art of Feraferia's founder, Fred Adams. I was very pleased that the high-quality production of this oversized volume makes it a collectible work of art, as well as a testament to the visionary philosophy of Fred Adams. I feel blessed that I received a copy. I will treasure it and look forward to the next book for more of the deep philosophy and ritual practice of Feraferia. Celebrate Wildness is a dense, art book quality, hardcover book. You can get it for just $45 from the Feraferia website at feraferia.org. That's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. And I hope you won't forget about the Renewal Retreat that's coming up uh, starting May 31st through June 3rd in Sunny Valley Resort, uh, Oregon. That's um, just north of Grants Pass in southern Oregon, if that helps you with the logistics a bit. Uh, One of the organizers, uh, Catherine Bostwick, uh, says, uh, come with us as we embark on a profound journey of releasing, revitalizing, and realizing our true potential. Immerse yourself in the supportive embrace of Mother Nature as we engage in the art of letting go of what no longer serves us to create space for the lives we have always dreamed of. Uh, They're going to do a really great retreat out there, and they're going to give you tools to bring home with you uh, so that all of the good stuff that you practiced and learned when you were there, you can actually continue it so that you can foster um, holistic well-being when you return home. So if you're uh, interested in that, uh, please do contact Kate. Um, Her email is Kate Bostwick, C-A-T-E, B-O-S-T-W-I-C-K at gmail.com. And guess what? I am actually going to be a facilitator at that event. Uh, I am going to be talking about herstory, women's agency, and um, in the wounded feminine. 
a bit. So uh, I will see you there if that's uh, something you decide you want to do. And uh, getting back to today's guest, uh, Robin Korak is with me, and we're uh, talking uh, all about Demeter, and she's got the book out, uh, Demeter, as well as she had written uh, Persephone, Practicing the Art of Personal Power. Uh, so, Robin, tell us um, about, um, you know, Demeter as a great archetype for social justice uh, in contemporary times. Sure. So what most people don't realize is that she had a role in ancient Greece um, as it related to social justice, as it related to making up policies and rules. And it's fascinating to watch her story from beginning to end because she goes through a period of grief, she goes through a period of anger. But the anger ultimately uh, within us and within her gives way to setting boundaries and making things right. And in fact, um, once she allows herself, once we allow ourselves to feel some of that anger, um, it can facilitate profound transformation. If you think about it, her when she just says to all of the gods, I'm not going to let anything else grow until my daughters return to me, Demeter is not usually thought of as being a powerful goddess. We usually look at you know, Zeus, for example, as being very powerful, and certainly he is, as the, the father of the king of the Olympians. So I don't think in the story, I don't think they really, in the beginning, the other uh, gods and goddesses really worried too much about what Demeter was feeling. And yet she brings them all to their knees because without crops, there will be no human life. And without humans, there will be no one to worship the gods and goddesses. And so it's a fascinating uh, look at how she was able to hold those in power accountable and challenge the patriarchal ideals that were causing harm um, just by her willingness to stand staunchly in that piece. And I think there's a lot to be learned from that. She had an epithet of uh, Demeter Thesmophoros. And in in that aspect, she was the lawgiver. And so she was associated with policies, and actually, um, Christine Downing, as an author, says that cities, she looks at it as though cities are the gift of Demeter because she, they look at her, or many scholars have seen her as one who gives pleasing ordinances to cities. So she was really the one who would guide all, mostly men in their decision-making around policies. She became the goddess of law and order, and she also taught mankind the importance of laws. And it's really interesting if you look at the parallels between her role as a goddess of earth and working in balance with nature, um, but also working in balance as it relates to society and to policies and laws. Um, she was likely concerned with laws or actions that align with nature's principles. Hmm. And would would uh, would this be going too far to say it's, it's it was also a parallel uh, to you know the abduction of Persephone? I mean, I know you saw yes. you know artifacts where you know everyone was smiling, so maybe it was consensual that you know she went down into the underworld. But might it could there also be something along the lines of? abduction uh, was the catalyst for her being about social justice? Yes. That's why I think it's important to look at different versions of a a myth because they Mm -hmm. all have their unique things to share with us. 
and I do think that's part of it. Um, and I, you know, I think that she taught all the Olympians a bit of a lesson. That as it relates to us today, a lot of her advocacy was about um, laws that weren't working, that were made by men but that weren't working. And so as followers of Demeter, it relates us to be able to go and take some of our anger and turn that into fuel for righting wrongs and enacting or helping to enact laws that um, are more just. Yeah, yeah. Because until she got angry, nobody cared about uh, Persephone being abducted, right? <laughs> the only person that cared was Hecate. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and you know, it makes me think about the Me Too movement, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, would we be, uh, you know, would we be talking about the stuff that came up in the Me Too movement if women hadn't just got sick and tired of it and angry? Right. Yeah. Um, so um, what would be some ways that people can maybe connect with Demeter and uh, work with her as part of their spiritual path? I always recommend um, reading the myths and journaling is a big thing for me. I know that's not for everyone, but you can make a simple de- altar dedicated to Demeter. I did that in the very beginning with a um, just a piece of, you can get like the, the wheat that you get at the craft stores or things like that and a candle. But I also think for some people that love to garden, that is a great way to work with Demeter is to care for some living plants. Um, it can also be in her law, you know, her lawgiver aspect. It could be, you know, um, work, working in advocacy issues. It could be working in a women's shelter. So there's a lot of different ways. Also, visiting her sacred sites, if you're not able to go physically, which many of us aren't, trying to visit her sacred sites in meditation and just exploring and seeing what you learn. Uh, learn. And um, so there's a lot of ways that you can work with her. Okay. And, you know, one other thing I, I wanted to ask you, and I forgot till now, uh, the mother wound. What is the mother wound, and yeah. um, how does that relate to Demeter? What does it teach us? Yeah, so traditionally um, the mother wound is defined as, as the wound that happens when you are a child and you do not have a mother figure that cares, is able to care for you um, or is able to you. So a lot of times this happens with, with people who maybe have parents that are having some mental health issues or maybe they have a mother that has some substance issues or they're ill a lot to where the child almost has to become the parent. So that's the traditional explanation. I tend to think of it more broadly because if you look at Demeter, her, her thing is she's actually a little overbearing. And so I think that, you, you know, there are wounds that exist when you have a mother figure who um, not always intentionally tends to be overprotective or in some way um, can make it challenging for us to achieve our own independence. And so, and, and this mother wound happens not just when we're children, but it resurfaces at periods in our life, such as when, um, if we're, you know, if we, if we align very strongly with Demeter and we're going through menopause or we have empty nest syndrome, um, that's another area where there's a connection there. And so working with her to understand um, her, her role, what she learned, she ultimately had to let Persephone be her own person. So she can help associate uh, what we're feeling. She can help us understand, and she can help us learn how to let go and how to see um, ourselves, how to mother ourselves 
particularly if we did not get that as a child. That's a big piece of it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. We are mothers. Yeah, if we are mothers, how do we um, how do we allow ourselves to let go to let our children um, flee the nest? <laughs> That's a very hard thing to do. And how do we redefine and, and have fertility not just as it relates to childbearing, but in those years of our life where we aren't a mother, how can we put that energy into projects or things that bring us joy? Yeah. Well, and especially in patriarchy, I mean, so many women, you know, uh, get the message that uh, their role in life is to be a mother. And in fact, you know, some of these, um, you know, the more culty, you know, religions, you know, uh, I mean, I've interviewed women in the Quirful movement who've escaped and, you know, that's the word they Mm -hmm. used, escaped. And, uh, you know, they say, I mean, they were expected to be breeders. And uh, if they got to the point where they were too old, uh, you know, if they died in childbirth, well, you're a martyr to Jesus. And, you know, I think about that Duggar woman who was, um, they had the TV show. I think she had like 18 children. Um, yeah. if, if I'm re- remembering right, I mean, my God, that must have been a, a, a child almost every year, a year and a half yeah. or something, you know, um, that is so sad. So I can imagine if you grow up thinking that that's your identity, um, you know, and, there, and that there's nothing else, uh, you know, for you. I mean, I actually took a class at the Kabbalah Center once, and we were talking about the gender, and I had one of the teachers tell me, um, you know, use the analogy of a computer. And he said, well, a computer, you look at it, what is its job? Its job is to be a computer. So you look at women, you look at men, you know, and, mm-hmm. and he was going yeah. strictly by the physical you know, strictly by the physical, yeah. as if there was there was nothing else. You know, because you know we could have a baby and become pregnant. That was what God intended us to do. And if we didn't, well, we didn't receive God's grace. Phew. Right. You know, um, what a terrible message. Um, so that would be part of the mother wound. I think that could be part of it too. And the other thing I would say too is that, and you know, a lot of times still in our society, I mean, there are women that can't have children biologically. There are women who don't mm-hmm. want to have children. And our society, I think, sometimes still tends to look down upon those women because they're not fulfilling that mother's role. And the men are actually can help those individuals too because, again, life and death and rebirth is about many things. It's not just about physical birth. It's about putting your energy into something, whether it be, you know, art, whether it be the social advocacy piece. How do you, you know, how do you spur those creative energies working with the men or that way and also being able to let it go when it's done? So she's helpful even to women who are not um, mothers in the sense of birthing children. Yeah, I think of that as kind of a creatrix in a way. You know, um, you can create anything from a baby growing inside you to, like you said, art or a book or an organization or whatever it is. And you can feel like, you know, you've created and nurtured that because you certainly have. And um, and it's just just as as valuable and legitimate, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, 
Well, Robin, I've enjoyed this, and, and we're coming to the end of our time. Uh, is there anything else? You know, I want to give you the last word here. Uh, is there anything else um, you'd like to say that I haven't thought to ask or uh, anything you're doing or anything about your, in your bio sure. that I didn't cover? Sure. Um, please feel free. I think, you know, a couple of things in terms of things coming up. I do have a book that will be coming out later this year on Dream Magic. And um, she's certainly one of the goddesses that has appeared to be my dreams. And I'll be presenting um, on Persephone with some discussion about Demeter at the Pagonicon in uh, Minneapolis in March. The other thing I would say is I think that um, Demeter is a, a much, much underrated goddess that has a lot of lessons and wisdom to offer all of us. And uh, it's, she's worth looking into and digging a little bit deeper um, because I think she's been a blessing for me to work with. Yeah, yeah, I can see you've gotten a lot out of her, uh, out of that relationship. And um, and I really thank you because uh, I've learned a lot about Demeter and I have a different perspective about her uh right now, you know, having had this conversation with you than, um, you know, than when we started. So, you know, so, so thank you for broadening that for me and, um, and you know, for your, for your work in the world with both of these goddesses. And uh, I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. It's been lovely to be here and to talk with you. All right, then. Um, and, uh, you know, let me know when the next book comes out and uh, we'll have you back, okay? That sounds great. Thank you. Okie doke. All right then. Bye bye. Uh, and before you go, listeners, um, uh, just uh, Joe Carson. Uh, she's shouting out at me uh, one more word. Hang on, and, uh, and then I'll be back with you on the other end. This is from Jonathan Nightshade. Hello, let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is Drusilla Pettibone on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about henges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers. I am also pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com.
today, everyone. I want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, I would like to uh, just, if you're looking for, uh, you know, some things to read about uh, valuing yourself, loving yourself, about self-worth, about uh, our quest for love and wholeness, uh, do go pick up my book, Goddess Calling. Uh, there's some inspirational messages in there, uh, also some meditations that help you work with those concepts. And, um, you know, just thought I would mention that uh, today uh, on Valentine's Day uh, so that, um, you know, we think uh, not just about uh, our loved ones, but uh, we think about ourselves and, um, you know, our relationship with ourselves and, um, um, you know, how we can appreciate the authentic person that we are. Okay, then. Um, You have a great day. Um, Have a great Valentine's Day. Uh, Treat yourself to a bubble bath. And I will be back with you next Wednesday. Uh, Laura Hirsch is with me. Uh, She is the uh, producer of a new docu-series. I believe it's called All About Goddess. It's a um, six-part series of documentaries that um, can be seen on Vimeo, uh, you know, uh, by a very small fee, very reasonable for the six hours or more of uh, material she's put together. Uh, We're going to be talking about that project that she has created, that she has birthed, that she has mothered, and uh, I think you'll really enjoy uh, hearing from her. She's lovely. I believe she's calling in from Germany, and uh, I think it'll be a fun show. All right, then. Uh, Again, I have a great Valentine's Day, folks. Uh, I appreciate your listener loyalty, and um, I will be back with you next Wednesday. And uh, I'll close the show, as I always do, with uh, homage to Sekhmet, to the lion-headed Egyptian goddess who tells women, have those healthy boundaries, and you know what? Don't feel shame, don't feel guilt, and don't even feel like you can't have anger when someone crosses those boundaries.